Okay. Thank you all. You're so amazing. Now, <clears throat> I need Jordan. Would you look up Mark 4, verses 1 through 9? Destiny, Mark 4, verses 21 through 23. Shelby, Luke 8, 4 through 8. Michaela, Luke 14, 34 and 35. Okay. <clears throat> now, what do these passages have in common? What, what is this about? Say what? Parable of the sower. Okay. That's wrong. <laughs> but it was a good guess because two of them did have to do with the sower. What, what, do, uh, what do all these passages share? <laughs> all right. You all have a copy of Mark chapter 7 in Mandarin in front of you. <clears throat> now take a look at that. What do you notice? What just jumps off the page to you? <laughs> okay. Yeah, good. Um, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure, almost 100% sure that the number after 15 in Mandarin Chinese and the number before 17 is 16. Now in Russian, Spanish, Greek, and English, I'm very sure that the number after 15 and the number before 17 is 16. I can't speak for Chinese. It might not be, but did you notice on your copy, the verses? Now look in your Bibles. <laughs> Mark chapter 7. Do you have verse 16? Is it footnote? <clears throat> Mine doesn't have a verse 16. Oh, yeah, mine's just not there. I, I have to go to the bottom of the page. Yeah, that's what mine says. Okay. <clears throat> it is no accident that... Verse 16 is missing, not just in the English translations. All of them, well, not all of them, but many of them, verse 16 is missing. But it's also missing in the Spanish. It's missing in Russian. It's missing in Greek. It's missing in Mandarin Chinese. It's just not there. Now, could this be what some might call a conspiracy? Oh, it could be, actually. <laughs> She's like, I don't know. Let's get into the text. We're going to unpack what's going on, and you guys get to decide if this is an international conspiracy, okay? There are those that believe that this was an early, very early attempt to change the meaning of Mark, the gospel of Mark from head to toe. It is precisely at chapter 7 where Jesus apparently overturns the authority of Torah. It is in chapter 7 where we see Jesus take a 3,000 plus year old law, the law of kashrut, the law of kosher, and he just overturns it. He just says, nope, no more. Demonstrating that the Torah is no longer valid. It's no longer binding because the living Torah 
namely Jesus. He's come and he's got the power and authority of God. He can now undo and rewrite the true commandments of God as he sees fit. Did I get any sarcasm on you? I'm sorry. There was a lot of sarcasm that came out. I'm sorry. Okay. Just that wipes off easily. Um, <clears throat> do you believe for a minute that our Jesus, does that sound like our rabbi? 3,000 year old Torah command that God himself wrote and Jesus comes in and says, I'm Jesus. We're done with that. I like the way you said that, Kyle, because Jesus, it's hard to harmonize Jesus with Matthew chapter 5 when he says, I did not come to abolish the Torah. I came to fulfill the Torah, right? See, he either did or he didn't. He's either abolishing it or he's not. Or maybe those words, we don't know what they mean. Um, What's really cool, I don't know if you learned this with Mr. Fox in Sermon on the Mount class, but that's rabbi speak. Abolish and fulfill, th those are rabbi terms. Just like, it's jargon. It's every field has its own vocabulary. The medical field uses a lot of Latin terms, right? They're going to talk about dorsal and um, uh, superior and inferior instead of just saying top, bottom, back, front, anterior. I just say front. Well, that's medical, right? Uh, mechanics, they don't talk about the doohickey and that thing over there and the spinny zing zing thing. They have names for those things. That's the alternator. That's a serpentine belt, whatever it is. Rabbis have their own jargon. And one of the rabbis speak words was abolish and fulfill. Now that didn't mean abolish as in slavery, that kind of abolish. When the rabbis used the term abolish, what they meant was I did not come to misinterpret the Torah. That's how you abolish Torah. You can't abolish Torah as in do away with it. It's God's word. And that would conflict with dozens of other scriptures where God says, my word is eternal. My word will never come back to me void. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, it's just funny, we, we can't harmonize Jesus because it sounds like he's contradicting himself, but he's not. So what does to fulfill mean? If abolish means misinterpret, what do you think fulfill means? To interpret, to interpret it correctly. So Jesus, the rabbi, comes on the scene and says, I'm not going to misinterpret the Torah. In fact, I'm going to be so careful with the Torah that not one jot not one tittle, they call it, decorative stroke will pass from the law until everything is fulfilled. Jesus says, that's how careful I'm going to be. I'm going to interpret it the way it's supposed to be interpreted. Now that's saying quite a lot. And he's got a big burden to carry if Jesus thinks, well, hey, everybody, I'm going to interpret the Torah the right way. As if to say, and all those guys... No, and that's not what he means, but wow, what a declaration. I'm here to tell you what the Torah really means. Jesus has no intention of abolishing the Torah. So it's just interesting because I don't know anybody that would say, oh yeah, 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 Jesus came to totally do away with the Torah. I, I suppose I do. Uh, there are people that believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he nailed the Torah to the cross. 
What's funny is those same people that believe the Torah no longer is valid in any way because Jesus came to completely abolish it. Those same people have a really hard time answering the question, what will God use on judgment day to judge you and your life? Because remember, Torah is gone. And the best they can come up with is, well, they'll, he'll use Jesus's life to judge your actions. But what was Jesus' life based on? Jesus' life was based 100% on the Torah. There's not one thing Jesus did, believed, or said that doesn't come right out of the Torah. And so it's just so interesting. And it's funny because Christians are like, well, yeah, the Old Testament doesn't matter. Say, how many, how many of the Ten Commandments do you obey? Nine. Why? Well, because Jesus reinterpreted those nine in the New Testament. So that's what gives it their validity, that Jesus reinterpreted those nine commandments. What about the Sabbath? We've already seen, does Jesus ever break the Sabbath? He keeps the Sabbath. What's funny is so do his disciples, so do the people that follow him that are on the outskirts. What about when he died was in the tomb? What did the ladies before they went and anointed his body and covered him with spices, what did they do on Sabbath? They rested according to the commandment that supposedly was already dead because Jesus already died. Does that make sense? It's like, this is so weird. We have such a hard time with Torah because we as Christians say, we're free from it. We don't have to obey it. Yet the entire sect of Christianity is based 1,000, 3,000% on Torah. Everything you do and everything you believe is based on the Torah. So that's kind of a long introduction to say, wow, uh, Jesus came to say, all right, I'm the guy. I'm going to just throw this stuff away. I don't think so. Okay, we're going to look closely. We're going to look carefully at the text today, and we're going to see if the true meaning of this text isn't exactly opposite what we've thought it was for the last, oh, I don't know, 2,000 years. Okay. We are going to see that indeed Jesus is not denying Jewish law, but in fact upholding it. Now let's read Mark chapter 7 and verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, oh, Then are you also without understanding? <clears throat> Do you see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, in parentheses. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. Huh. Interesting. Did you catch all that? Okay. By the way, that little parenthesis there, thus he declared all foods clean. That is the conspiracy that I am referring to. Now, I don't necessarily believe that this was a conspiracy, but I, I'm not ready to say it's not either. I'm sort of an agnostic on the conspiracy thing right now. I'm a ag 
Yeah, I'm an agnostic. I don't know. Literally, I don't know. So the story begins with some Pharisees and some scribes. Who are the scribes? Torah teachers from Jerusalem gathering around Jesus and his disciples. And they complain that his disciples are not washing their hands before eating. See, we didn't even read that because we started in what verse? Let this be a lesson to us always. Never, ever, ever read a verse in the Bible. Never read even a few verses in the Bible. You're telling me not to read verses in the Bible. Don't read verses. Read chapters. Yes. So if you go back to chapter 7, listen to this. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, unwashed. Guys, please don't think that this means the disciples were eating with filthy hands and grimy fingernails and huge pieces of dirt and refuse and chunks of slime and gross stuff all over their hands. That's not what it means. It means they were not observing the ritual way of washing hands that the Jews from the South were accustomed to doing. Yes, that's right. So the Pharisees are complaining to Jesus and not his disciples uh, because ultimately it's Jesus who's responsible for the actions of every single one of his disciples, right? His Tommy Dean. But Jesus gets angry and he starts to attack them. It's kind of like, whoa. He seems to go off on this tangent about mothers and fathers and honor and sacrifices. And our question should be, why? Why does he get so angry? And why does he attack the Pharisees? The usual explanation is that the Pharisees have this terrible commitment to the minute details of this ancient code we call the Torah. And these laws are merely external things and Jesus is about focusing on the spiritual or the internal. Hmm. The reason, I think, as history has explained to us so far, that Jesus gets so mad is they just won't give up Torah. It's like, it's done already. I'm here. I'm the new Torah. That's kind of the Christian thought is Jesus just gets so upset with them because they just won't. You know, it's like the zombie argument. It just won't stay dead. It's like, I thought I already, nope, here it comes again. Oh boy, here we go again. You know? So, uh, and look at verse 19. He says, since it enters the heart, not the heart, but the stomach and is expelled. In this way, he declared how much food? All food clean. How much clearer could it be? It's like, geez, get over it, people. Listen to this, guys. Um, if we keep reading, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And he said, <clears throat> let me clear my throat here. What do you think you are? You know, Jesus just blasts him. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? And I can see him wagging his finger like that. 
you hypocrites. You know what a hypocrite is? In Greek, it's an actor. They wore masks and they acted like something they were not. So I'm going to act like the king. I'm not a king. I'm just an actor. I'm a guy. I'm married. I have three kids, but I'm now the king. So he's telling, Jesus says, you actors, you've got these masks on and you're trying to be something you're not. It's really cool. You hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is really weird. Why would he say that if he were just about to declare the Torah invalid? He just quoted Isaiah as saying, these people worship me, but their hearts are so far from me. They're teaching as commandments, teachings of people over God. And in just a minute, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to throw away that whole entire thing. Does that make any sense? Oh boy, that's just weird. Six verses later in Mark 7, he's going to completely set the Torah aside. So Jesus cites this verse from Isaiah 29 which has God accusing Israel of setting aside what God said in the name of human preference, all right? The implication is that the Pharisees prefer their own traditions, okay? Then he cites this example. This is his accusation. Listen to him. You leave the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of man, verse nine. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, "Uh uh-oh, Hebrew roots time, What is that code for? Moses is a nickname for the books of Torah. So Jesus, about ready to throw the Torah in the garbage can, decides to cite for his argument the Torah. Does that make any sense? It's just weird. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, well, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus you make void the word of God by your traditions that you've handed down and many such things you do. Oh, I love it. He's going on a rampage now. Now, where does Moses, uh, Moses, where does Jesus get honor your father and mother from? It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the fifth command, right? So he says, look, Moses said, or the Torah says, you need to honor your father and your mother. That's Exodus 20. Then he pulls another text right out of Torah, Exodus 21, and he says, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Side note, honor in Hebrew does not mean, you know, I I honor my mom or my dad. Just saying it. That's not what honor is. Do you know what honor is in Hebrew? Honor is feeding your parents, taking care of them, helping them come in and go out and taking them by the arm. That is how you honor your father and mother. It's not about agreeing with them. It's not how you talk to them. It's not how you um, eat with them. It's making sure they eat. And they have their food. It's making sure that you are helping them 
in and out of their house, in and out of their car. That's how you honor your father and your mother. So don't get confused with, gee, I don't agree with my mom. I'm dis, I'm dishonoring her. Or gee, I, I had an argument with my dad. I've just dishonored him. That is not how you just, dis- of course, disrespectful is something different. You can, don't be disrespectful, but uh, honor is something different in, in Hebrew. So what's korban? Korban is a Hebrew word that means to draw near. All the sacrifices were called korban because it's from a verb, um, karva, and it means to draw near. So that's how you draw near to God is through your sacrifices. All right. Uh, yeah, C-O-R-B-A-N. Now, Jesus' primary example is how the Pharisees set aside Torah in order to establish their own laws, right? Now, what we have in this story is the tale of two cities, as it were. We have the Yehudim. Those are the Jews from the south. And they, guess which laws and commandments they adhere to? The traditions of the elders or the written Torah? The traditions of the elders. Now the rabbis up in Galilee, guess which ones they hold to? The Torah. The Torah, the one, the written code. And when the Jews from the south come up and they see Jesus' disciples, you know, I mean, you know, it's like, what are you doing? And Jesus says, what are you doing? Right? And then he calls the crowd to him. I love this. Here's where we get into our text and we get to start digging and you guys get to do some awesome treasure hunting. He called the people to him again and he said, come here, hear me, all of you. There's nothing outside a person that, got, that by going into him can defile him, but it's the things that come out of a person. That's what defiles him. Sweet, huh? Okay, cool. Verse 17, because 16 has gone. And when he had entered the house, and left the people. His disciples asked him about the parable. Nobody fell out of their chair. <laughs> what parable? Did you hear the parable? Did you miss the parable? What parable? I don't understand. Jesus said, come here, everybody. Ready? Come here. Come here. I want to tell you something. Come here. I want everybody hear me. It's not the things that go into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of him. That's what defiles him. And the disciples were like, Jesus, we don't understand the parable. And we're just fine. And we're just like, yeah, okay. Verse 18. And he said to them, guys, there is no parable. What in that entire chapter is a parable? The Pharisees? You're not wrong. When you stick verse 16 back in there where it goes, what's verse 16 say? Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Why did I have you read five different passages before we started? What does every one of those have in there? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And do you know how every single parable was ended in those passages? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The way you start a parable in Hebrew, if you're a rabbi in Jesus' day, was to what may we compare such and such? Like the kingdom of heaven. That's how you start a parable is to what may we compare, I don't know, forgiveness. To what may we compare 
discipleship. And then you tell a parable. It is like a child who watches his father get up and lie down, work and rest, love his wife. This is what we may compare a disciple to. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now you know the parable's over. It's a, and they all lived happily ever after the end. That's how you know the fairy tale is coming to a close. Colorín, colorado, y este cuento se ha acabado. That's how you answer, that's how you finish a fairy tale in Spanish. It's a programmed ending. Guys, when you take verse 16 out of the context, what does it turn that 15 and 14 into? What does it turn it into? Huh? It turns it into not a parable. And you know what a not a parable is? It's a story. And by proxy, it's a commandment. If it's not a parable, it's now history. It's now fact. If I say to you, a sower went out to sow his seed. Some fell on the good soil. Some fell on the rocky soil. Some fell on the hard ground. And man, it was awful. And that guy, he didn't reap anything that year, hardly. All right. You're like, what? was that true? Well, yeah. Was there anything in that that indicated that it wasn't true? No. But if I said, and they all lived happily ever after, the end. Oh, that was a story. That was just fiction. Do you see what I'm saying? When you take 16 out of Mark chapter 7, it takes the parable that is nothing that goes into a man can defile him, but only what comes out of him. Let's keep reading. Uh, That's what defiles him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a parable. It is a parable. A parable is told for what reason, y'all? It was to make a difficult concept more easily understood. Yes. A parable was told in order to enhance understanding by the audience, not confuse it. If this is so, and Jesus was using simple pictures to illustrate a point, then you and I are obligated first to remember what is the point. And here's where we have to use context. What are the Pharisees upset about? Yes, they're upset about the disciples were not abiding by which set of commands? The traditions of the elders. These were the commentary on the written Torah. They were upset that the disciples of Jesus were not following the traditions of the elders. They were accusing the disciples of becoming ritually unclean. And here's where the rubber meets the road. This is where we get really down to brass tacks. These are really old expressions I'm using, but they're fun to use. This is where we see the nitty gritty, okay? They were accusing the disciples of becoming ritually unclean by this way. Are you ready? They took ritually defiled hands And they touched kosher, ritually clean food. And upon touching their kosher food with their defiled hands, they rendered their food unclean. And then they put that food into their mouths 
And what happened to them? Now I'm unclean. And Jesus says, what? Are you cuckoo? I mean, what in the world? Okay, okay, come here, come here, come here. First of all, let me tell you about your oral traditions, okay? And then he just blasts him using Moses. Then he says, come here, come here, come here, come here. I'm going to tell you a parable. It's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out of a person. And the disciples are like, are you talking about like number one and number two? Like, I don't really get it. And Jesus says, all right, boys. Yeah, teenage, teenage potty humor. He says, come here, guys. They ask him about the parable. Jesus, we don't understand. What are you talking about? It's not what goes in. It's what comes out. And Jesus says, cool, listen. Do you not see? Whatever goes into a person from outside, that's not what defiles them. Since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach. Guys, I'm talking about food. You are accused by the Pharisees of touching your food with dirty hands, so to speak, and that made you defiled. I'm telling you, it's not what goes into your stomach. It's what goes into your heart. That's what defiles you because what comes out of your heart, where do, by the way, how does something come out of your heart? Your words, your mouth, your hands, your feet. That's Jesus' point is when you, when you focus on evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. These things are what defile a person. It's not about the wrong kind of way that I didn't follow that tradition that defiles you. Those guys are wrong. <laughs> They're wrong. And I'm here to tell you why. Now, if you take 16 out of there, all of a sudden, Jesus is declaring all foods. And that's the kind of food that you think is food. Clean. Shrimp. Catfish. Mussels. Um, rabbit. Pig. Oysters. All these things are, God said, those are unclean. It's not that they were dirty and filthy. Some of them are, but some of them aren't. Rabbits aren't dirty, filthy. They chew a cud. Just like a cow, a rabbit does. Yeah. You know? But their hoof is wrong. Their foot is wrong. Camel, very clean in the sense that they're not eating trash. Cows, I mean cows, camels are vegetarians. But they're unclean because they have a, a foot that's wrong. It's got the split in it. It's, it's wrong. And it's just these weird things we don't understand as Jews. Let me ask you a question. If I said to you today, I brought my lunch. I brought my lunch for Apologetics Club. Yeah. You know, would you be grossed out? Yes. Why? Because, that's trash. because it's trash. Do humans eat trash? No. no. Do you know what trash is to a Jew? Camel, rabbit, pig, shellfish, lobster, shrimp. Those are trash. They're not even food. Nobody can call that food because it's garbage. It, no one would ever eat it. When you're talking about Jewish people, you're talking about those kinds of animals that I just named. Those are considered garbage. They're not even food. 
So when Jesus declared all food clean, we have to read it like a Jew. He didn't desert. He didn't declare trash to be food. That's not what it says. And Jesus declared all trash to be food. All their kosher foods, they're clean. No matter what you do to them, it's still clean. All foods are clean. Whether you touch them with defiled hands or not, it's the food. The food remains clean. In other words, you cannot defile food with defiled hands if those hands are really defiled. Now, this is an incredible teaching that we've totally missed for thousands of years because we thought Jesus declared all trash to be now food. And Peter went, yeah, I've been wanting a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich since I was knee high to a grasshopper. And Jesus says, well, go get me one too. And while we'll have pork chops tonight, we'll have bacon for breakfast, we'll have sausage. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Jesus did not overturn any commandment here. And when we read the text carefully and we look into our Hebrew roots, we see, oh my gosh, the, dis- the dispute was over whether or not their food became defiled by touching it, by contact. And Jesus says, no, all food is clean. It remains clean. It's never not clean. You know what's not clean? Your hearts. Jeez. And Jesus says, yeah, sit on that. Your hearts aren't clean. That's what defiles you. Not washing your hands wrong. And the copper vessels and the dining couches and all the things that they were saying, none of that makes any sense and it doesn't defile you. So it's funny because we thought, wow, Jesus overturned the food laws. You know what's really crazy? Turn to Acts chapter 10. I love, love, love this story. There are two places, count them, one, (laughs) two, Two places in the entire New Testament where Christians get that Jesus and God overturns the the kosher food laws. You just looked at one of them, Mark chapter 7. You decide, is there a good case that Jesus declared everything in the world is now, you're able to eat it? Or is he talking about something that started in chapter 7 in the beginning? The other place is Acts chapter 10, Peter's vision. Now, Peter is on top of a guy named Simon the Tanner's roof. Simon's a tanner. Do you know what they used in Jesus' day to separate the fascia from the actual hide of the animal? You know what the fascia is, that connective tissue? They used uric acid. What's uric acid? Where do you find uric acid? Huh? You're what? Okay, there's an even better place. Urine, it's in your urine. A lot of ammonia and uric acid. Can you imagine those big vats full of uric acid? Which, When you smell urine really strong in a cat or a dog, that's the uric acid. Can you imagine Simon the Tanner's house? He's a tanner. So he's got vat after vat after vat cooking those hides so he can be a leather tanner. Imagine how that that smelled. And Peter's up on his roof. I know why he had a vision. Oh my gosh. He was high off the uric acid. No, not really. But it says Peter fell into a trance. (laughs) I'd like to think that. This is an incredible story, y'all. Listen to this. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about six hours to pray. 
He became hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air. And there came a voice that said to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Ain't no way. By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Breaks, stop. Peter, you are a very bad disciple. Why? Because 15, 10, 15 years later, after your rabbi ascends into heaven, and he already declared all foods to be clean, you missed that teaching. That fundamental, monumental, incredible, life-changing, earth-shattering teaching that Jesus overturned all the kosher food laws. Peter somehow must have missed it the most important disciple, the one that was the oldest and the one that always, always, always spoke first. Peter missed that teaching somehow. Does that seem very likely to you? Probably not. Is Peter going to miss a teaching that overturns 3,000 years old of, 3,000 years of Torah? No. What? He does deny him. He does deny him. But, did he miss the teaching? Come on, guys. You got to really be reaching if you think Peter missed a teaching that was that massive and that important. He didn't miss a teaching. In Acts chapter 10, Peter still says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Why didn't God say, wait a minute. My son already did that. Mark chapter 7. Why did you miss that? You were right there. I know. I had my AirPods in. I, I, I must have tuned out. <laughs> what? No. You read the rest of the story, it happens three more times. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, no, I'm not going to do it. I've never done it. I've never done it my whole life. I'm not going to do it now. Do you know that Christians take this story, rip it out of context and say, see, God said, rise, kill and eat. There are no unclean animals anymore. Pig, lobster, shrimp, it's all good. How do you know? Peter's vision. If you think I'm crazy, Try it out. Test people out. Ask your pastor. Ask your preacher. Ask your youth minister. Hey, where do we get that we're not, that we can just eat whatever we want? Like, where is that in the New Testament? Mark 7, Acts 10. It's clear as a bell. Right there, Peter's sheet. See, God said, rise, kill, and eat. What's funny is, Peter, the Jew, the experienced Jew, the 30-year-old Jew at this time, 30, 35 years old, Peter doesn't even understand the meaning of the vision. But you, a modern Western Christian, 16, 17, 18 year old. Oh yeah, I got that. Yeah, it's uh, over. It's like, what? If you keep reading, do you know what Peter does? Verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly, inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. In other words, Peter doesn't have a clue what this vision means. Guess who knocks on his door? Cornelius, the Gentile. And says, you got to come to my house, or his messengers, because God sent us to come get you. And Peter says, I can't go into a Gentile's house. They're common and they're unclean. And uh, ding. Oh, 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 this is so good. Oh God, you are so awesome because you always speak to us in ways that we can understand the whole animal unclean. The Gentiles are unclean. And God says, what God has called clean, don't you dare call unclean. And Peter says, oh, 
So since you sent the, and the angel and the messenger, and I'm supposed to go to Cornelius, you're saying that the Gentile, he's clean? And God says, bingo, has nothing to do with food. Test me out on this. Read chapter 10 in its entirety and see if that's not exactly, exactly the way it is. In fact, Peter says, then he realized what it meant. Then he goes to Cornelius' house, who he's not even allowed to enter into his house because they're unclean. And he remembers the vision. The vision is about Cornelius, not about animals. So I love Hebrew roots. I love our glasses. When we put them on, the scriptures make sense. I told you guys this was a short lesson today and I lied because I can just talk even if I don't have a voice. But let's end right now. <laughs> Give you guys a break. Um, any questions? Uh, yeah, I do have a question. Okay, go for it. I knew I knew it. I will answer it like this. I do not believe Gentiles are bound by the kosher food laws. Why? Man, that's a great. I've been struggling with this for 10 years. What of the old code is valid and what is not? What was written to the Jews and what was written to the sojourner or the, the traveler? How, what, what relationship do we have to the Jewish people? God never makes one single covenant in the entire Bible with a Gentile. So how, how are you in? How are you in? How are you in? How are you getting in, by the way? No covenants were ever made with you. Well, Peter says, you Gentiles have now become citizens of heaven. Citizens. You are co-heirs with Christ. You have inherited the commonwealth of Israel. Now, are you Israelites? Not a chance. You are not Israel. Neither am I. We never will be. But every single thing in the entire Bible has been pointing to that God has two peoples that he loves and he's going to save. The first is his chosen people, the Israel, the Jews, the Israelites. The second is the goyim, the rest of the, the world, the nations. And Israel's job was to be a light unto the nations, us. Now, were they? Yes. Did we come to know Christ through them? Yes. Thank God they did their job. But we are not Jews. I don't believe in replacement theology either, that we're now God's chosen people. No, we're not. But here's the deal. If I'm a citizen of the United States and I enjoy the commonwealth and all the rights and privileges of being a citizen of the United States. Am I a native-born citizen? Am I a, native bo am I a native American? No, I don't turn into a Native American all of a sudden when I get citizenship. Uh, if I become a citizen of Germany, do I become a German? No, I'm a citizen. I'm still a gringo. I'm still a, an American. I'm just... It's okay. <laughs> I'm just... I, I, I'm a German citizen. I don't begin to look German. I don't all of a sudden speak perfect German. So what does it mean in heaven's citizenship? I think I still look like me. I act like me. I talk like me. I eat like me. I think Paul knew that. But there are certain things that I need to do now that are different. Namely, my morality, the way I live. So do we have to follow kosher? I think that was for the Jews. I think it still is. We don't. Now, is there benefit in not eating bottom feeders like shrimp? and lobster, whose job, whose existence is to clean up the trash on the bottom of the ocean floor. So they're the, they're the ocean's vacuum cleaner, and we say, ooh, yummy. Give me some of that flesh. 
Now, I love shrimp and lobster. I know. It's so good. How about pigs? You can't. Pigs don't have sweat glands. Pigs do not sweat. Sweat gets rid of toxins. Pigs don't sweat. They have no sweat glands. They waller in the mud to cool themselves down. So all of that toxin and salt and all that juice, <laughs> it stays in. You can feed one pig in a cage and put three below or two below him, three below him, and four below him. Ten pigs. Feed the top one and all ten survive. What? You feed the top one. It does its thing. And the other pigs eat that and they do their thing and the other pigs eat that. It's true. It is true. And that's what you want to have on your hamburger. Will you be healthier if you follow God's diet? I think you will. Fruits and vegetables are God food. Everything processed is man's food. And guess why people have cancer in unprecedented numbers today? Everything we eat is processed foods. It's man food. So, yeah. Other comments, questions? Yeah, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. We'd all be a lot healthier if we ate fruits and vegetables. And just meat uh, once a week, fish, uh, turkey, chicken, beef. It'd be fine. I don't know how Argentinians live past the age 50 because those in Argentina, they eat red meat like three times a day. Oh, it's great, but it's terrible for you. It just tastes good. It's bad for the...